Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, we've got the Delta variant, and that's calling into question the reopening trade, if you will, putting some headwinds out there for the global economic growth, causing some people to take down their growth forecast for this year, uh, maybe putting a little bit more pressure on 2022. What is an investor to do uh, with that backdrop here? Chad Oviat, Senior Vice President, Director of Investment Management at Huntington Private Bank, joins us. They have about $27 billion in assets under management. So, Chad, again, the folks thought they were going to have, you know, maybe a clearer reopening trade the back half of 21. That looks like it will be delayed. How are you guys thinking about a you know, portfolio construction here in what is, you know, still a Delta world? Yeah, great question. And thanks for having us on this morning. Uh, as we think about things on the minds of markets and certainly things that our clients are starting to ask about, there is no shortage of headlines out there to indicate that we, we might be facing some headwinds related to that opening trade, right? You have Evergrande, so that news coming out of China, we have monetary policy this week, fiscal policy, still some unknowns there, higher energy prices. We do have some slower growth numbers coming at us here in the U.S. as well as around the world. You have earnings questions, global supply chains. So really what we are encouraging our clients to do is just take a step back and even think about where we might be in the next 6 to 12 months. If it is slower growth, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. Uh, we've been growing at such an accelerated pace that some slowing should be expected, at, at least in terms of the rate of growth. So we're still positioned in a post-recession environment. We think the U.S. economy, as well as the global economy, we're, we're going to have these moments where we have resurgence in the path of the pandemic. There's going to be increases in cases. Uh, there's still some fair amount of accommodation from most central banks around the world. Fiscal policy is still supportive. So all things being equal, we're still positioned for growth, even if it does start to slow here heading into the, the last quarter of this year. So what are you doing to position for growth? Where are you putting your money? Yeah, we still, if we're thinking about how we're constructing portfolios, we're using what we call our 3B methodology right now. We're broadly asset allocating. So we're using a broad representation of asset classes, stocks, bonds, real estate investments, commodities, you name it, we're putting representation, again, in a, in a broad base of asset classes. We're really balancing between growth and value right now. We're not tilting one way or another too heavily. We may favor a little of the growth side right now, but still staying pretty balanced. And then we're also being relatively bond light in most of our allocations. We think path of least resistance for yields is likely higher. And so we are favoring equities over fixed income now. Uh, you know, so broad asset allocation, balance between growth and value, and bond light is really what we're thinking about. So, you know, a lot of folks, you know, they're thinking about, do I need to stick with some of those tried and true growth stories? They give me both top line and bottom line growth, whether it's a, you know, a Microsoft or an Apple or something along those lines, maybe some healthcare names, or do I kind of, you know, really embrace this 
um, reopening and, and think about rotation into some more cyclical names. Maybe I can get some small cap and get some return there. How do you guys think about the equity allocation? Within equities, we, we did broaden out earlier this year there as well. So we did start to increase our exposures to mid and small cap earlier in the year. We haven't pulled back from those decisions. We still are predominantly large cap domestic equity focused, but we still have our broader representations. There could be some challenges with the idea of slower growth, maybe not as much support by way of stimulus or accommodation that could impact some of those smaller or mid-sized companies. But generally speaking, we're still favorable on all of the uh, different market capitalizations here. We haven't changed our allocation. We are a little bit in a wait-and-see moment with the Fed meeting this week. We also have uh, some fiscal policy decisions coming at us. Taxes. And the quarter here, and taxes potentially, uh, which is something that we always talk about with our clients in the fourth quarter of each year. Uh, but this year is going to be a particularly challenging set of circumstances if we don't have a whole lot of clarity on what the tax ramifications may be for next year. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be the biggest there's so many question marks, Chad, I know, but taxes for, for your business has to be one of the biggest ones. It is, and, and we've had such a great rebound from where we were March of 2020 that there's a lot of embedded, unrealized gains in portfolios. And so for those folks with taxable investments that have gains, there's some decisions to be made ahead of what could be some potential tax increases. So we will be talking uh, very closely to our clients about that. We're not tax advisors, so we'll be working with some of their other professionals within their financial lives. But that is part of the equation for particularly high net worth investors. What do you do with some of these gains? How and when do you realize those? Do you have potential losses in other parts of your portfolio? Again, we'll be working with their tax advisors, but uh, it is a conversation that will start to pick up here as we enter the fourth quarter. Hey, Chad, thanks so much for joining us here today. We appreciate getting your thoughts here on these markets. Chad Oviat, Senior Vice President, Director of Investment Management at Huntington Private Bank, located in, I think, the state of Ohio. The great state of Ohio. There you go, the Ohio State University. So uh, look forward to that. Anyway, Chad, kind of talking about a broad diversification uh, of a portfolio, and we've heard that from others uh, like Barry Ritholtz as well. A lot more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Well, Matt and I, we've been following this global supply chain issue, uh, you know, for months now. It just really doesn't seem to be getting any better. And it affects so many different industries across the board. And a story jumped out at me today that I wanted to talk about, and that is U.S. real estate builders building homes. Tough to find materials, tough to find people that will work and build these houses. Craig Giamona joins us, U.S. real estate team leader for Bloomberg News. And his claim to fame, in my opinion, was he was the sports editor for the Daily Sitka <laughs> Sentinel. Where is Sitka, you might ask? Oh, Sitka. Sitka, That's Alaska. awesome. Who is that on the resume? Sitka, Alaska. That's awesome. Uh, Craig, thanks so much for joining us here. So we're hearing from the home builders that the supply chain challenges are hit, impacting their business as well. What's going on? Yeah, you know, they, this has kind of been out there for a while, as you said, right? So the supply chain has been snarled really across the globe. It started with lumber. That was a pretty high profile. Some of that has eased off. But you're really seeing sort of the macro factors that we know about um, showing up in, in the home builder world. And they're talking about it in their, in their earnings. Hard time getting workers, hard time getting things like windows and wood. And 
you know, it's slowing them down. I mean, I think the flip side a little bit is that they're making a ton of money on these homes. You know, the, there was a prop, there was sort of a guidance warning yesterday from Pulte Group, but they did say our margin is up, so we don't think it's going to affect earnings. But it's slowing down their ability to build these homes. What What do you think about? I mean, you're the U.S. real estate team leader. What a hot subject! Probably one of the most popular dinner guests wherever you live. Um, what do you think about prices that have gone crazy, um, supply that has dried up? Where is this market headed? You know, there's really no – we've been waiting, right? There's been – things froze up in March 2020. It was very quiet in April and May. But as soon as people started to move around again, they felt a little bit better about wearing a mask and having an open house. The market now has really been on fire for the better part of a year and a half. And you know, the laws of gravity still exist, right? I mean, I, I don't know how long we can see. But prices can't come down, right, Craig? You, housing prices don't ever fall. That's, that's right. What could ever go wrong? Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think all kidding aside, um, it's been month after month after month. And I think a lot of us are sitting here saying what something has to give here. But mortgage rates are still at historically low levels, below 3%. And there's tremendous demand. There's a gigantic millennial generation that sort of delayed home purchases. They had student debt. But now those people are 35, having the second kid. The pandemic sort of made people, a lot of people reevaluate cities like, you know, Manhattan or San Francisco. So there's just tremendous demand for homes that we don't have enough. We've underbuilt for decades. And that's why prices continue to go up. So, Craig, you know, I read a Bloomberg story, uh, you know, uh, another logistic issue, just saying how, you know, a cargo ship was loaded in Asia, sailed for Los Angeles Long Branch, took 19 days to get there. And then when it got there, it's now sitting there for 20 days, still not able to unload uh, its cargo. Are any of these home builders given any guidance as to when they think things will improve in their business? They haven't, and they haven't gotten incredibly specific about like where the pain points are, but I think we know that things like that are showing up. I mean, there's labor issues, so they haven't said too much of that. I mean, I think the, the good thing for the home builders right now is that they can sell every home they built, and they're selling them fast. Um, some of this, you know, going back a couple of months, we had a, we broke a story that these builders were deliberately slowing down sales, and now some of them have come out and said that because they don't want to disappoint buyers I also think an element of that was with the commodities being so volatile that they didn't want to lock in contracts when these homes were still under under construction because, you know, wait three months and maybe the price is going to be 15 percent higher. So I think some of this was them trying to control the business. And I, I think I still think that they're there. The, the, you know, the good thing, like I said, the backdrop here is that there's no shortage of buyers for these homes. There's billions and billions of dollars that's been raised on Wall Street uh, to go after these homes, you know, by institutional investors, not to mention sort of the first-time buyers and the families that are trying to get into the wealth creation pipeline that we've believed in for, you know, 50 years in this country. Is there any indication that the government wants to step in and do something? I mean, it's terribly un-American to intervene in markets like that. But here in Germany, you know, they're talking about, well, we've got rent caps and everything like um, New York City, but they're also talking about taking property back. Um, in, 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 in Canada, you've got both parties were saying they wanted to block foreign buyers from um, the markets for at least a couple of years. Are you hearing anything like that out of the U.S.? It's very interesting. I mean, somebody else, another editor at Bloomberg, asked me this very question this morning about whether when I think this is going to become a political issue in the United States. I mean, it's sort of one of these things where I just think we have a very different attitude about it in the U.S. than they do in Europe or Canada. Um, I think affordability is a huge problem. You'll see the Democrats talk about it at a high level, but 
as far as specific plans to address it, I mean, the Biden administration has put some money into building more affordable housing, but these things are very, very tricky in a, in a capitalist society, very tricky to control. And like you said, it's un-American for the government. to. A lot of people believe it's un-American for the government to step in and, and try to control this. But, you know, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that we're looking at a generational shift in the ability of people to buy homes. I mean, I think there's a generation of people that just might have to rent, you know, that that three hundred thousand dollar home for a first time buyer. That's the thing that doesn't exist. You know, people that were in homes that were able to refi you know, they, they've managed to buy homes for cash. They've bought second homes. This really has been a housing rally fueled at the high end. And it is creating some some serious questions that I think could become a political issue, but very, very tricky to deal with that, I think, in a substantive way. Craig, you know, when we've spoken to home builders in the past, you know, they've said that they're not really buying entry level. They're not building entry level homes because the margin on some of the bigger homes is much, much better for them. And to the is that one of the contributors to this housing problem that they just historically have not been building entry level for first time buyer? Yes, absolutely. And that, that goes back to the last crash. I mean, I think they came out of, you know, look, we've underbuilt in this country for three or four decades. If you look at the chart, just it, we haven't kept up and we're running out of land. Zoning is a big problem in a lot of the country. Single family zoning is a political issue, but you know, there's a lot of sort of well-meaning, well-meaning people that would agree we have an affordability crisis, but when the proposal shows up in their town, they say, no way, I want to keep single-family zoning. You know, the NIMBY factor is a big effect. So we've underbuilt for a long time, and coming out of the last crash, you're right, the builders basically said the margin is much better at the high end. You know, it, it costs me maybe only slightly more to build this high-end home, and I can make a lot more uh, selling it. So there has been an underbuilding problem at the low end. That is probably something the government could try to address. But, you know, right now we're dealing with a severe shortage of, of places to live. And, oh, by the way, rent is up. You know, yeah. rent is up all over the country. Basically everywhere besides Manhattan and San Francisco, rent has gone through the roof. That's because people with good six-figure jobs can't find homes to buy and are now renters. Better to be a seller than a buyer in this real estate market is what I've been told, Matt. Uh, Craig Giamona, U.S. real estate team leader for Bloomberg News. His Twitter handle, at Sitka Writer, Sitka, Alaska. Boom. Didn't see that coming. So Craig Giamona giving us the latest on housing supply chain issues impacting that industry uh, as well. Lumber prices, labor, you name it. Now, I remember when I was a kid, maybe fourth or fifth grade, and my dad had started a project to put a deck on the back of the house. Wow. And he was like in seventh heaven, absolutely <laughs> obsessed. It was all he could think about, studying every possible material he could use, you know, figuring out what the maintenance would be, planning. It was like it was like the greatest thing that ever happened to him, and I didn't get <laughs> why until I got my own house. And now I totally get it, especially after the pandemic. A deck is like your own private yep. little escape. Yep. Brian Fairbanks joins us right now, president and CEO of Trex. They make the alternative wood uh, decking material that all homeowners are probably familiar with. Brian, I imagine your business was absolutely booming during lockdown. How's it going now? Yeah, things continue to move along well. So thanks for having me on this morning, both Matt and Paul. As we moved into the pandemic last year, of course, there were a lot of questions about the economy early on. But pretty quickly after that, people were staying at home, realized they had time to work on their homes. And we saw our numbers 
increased quite rapidly through that time period. And we've continued to see that tailwind into 2021. As we look forward, we still continue to see opportunities for strength of outdoor living products and people wanting to be able to build low-cost outdoor space on their home. So give us a sense of um, your supply chain. We've heard from so many different company executives and uh, across the globe that they can't get the materials they need. And if they do get the materials, they don't have the labor to actually build it. Talk to us about your business, how you're dealing with that. Sure. It's fair to say that we've had our share of challenges. Last year, we grew over 20% as a company, and year-to-date through the second quarter, we've grown 32%. So that puts a lot of pressures on our suppliers. Of course, we had the freeze down in Texas earlier this year, so some of the additives and various polymers that go into our product were impacted by that. But overall, with the success of our supply chain group, we've been able to manage our way through without having any uh, main outages of material. Where do you uh, put together your decking? I know it's it's mostly recycled materials, right? So where do you source that and where do you put it, put it all together? Yeah, correct. Uh, Trex is uh, unique in that 95% of the content that goes into our deck boards is recycled material. It's polyethylene stretch film and bags from grocery stores, as well as reclaimed wood. We purchase that from all over the country and up into Canada. We will work with some of the larger grocery chains, large distributors, anybody who is using polyethylene as protective wrap on manufactured parts, And we've built our program to be a service to these organizations where instead of paying to put this material into landfill, we can provide them payment and get it off their shipping dock quickly and put it into Trex decking products. Uh, So some companies, as they think about how their business was impacted by the pandemic and the the changes in everybody's day-to-day lifestyles, a lot of businesses we're able to pull demand forward, uh, whether you're a Peloton provider or or something else. And when you look at your business, did you see, I mean, the growth rate you're talking about, not typical, I wouldn't think, in that business. So how much of your growth that you've experienced over the last, you know, four or five quarters do you feel is just, you know, literally pulled forward from uh, the following, the upcoming quarters? Pre-pandemic timeframe, Trex company was growing between 14 and 16%. We've seen higher growth In the meantime, as we come out of the pandemic, we have significant opportunities to be able to continue growing in that high teens type level as we focus on converting more people who would have been installing wood decks. Today, wood decks account for about 78% of the overall industry. And our key strategy is to convert more of that to treks at the rate of 200 or more basis points a year. We also have opportunities to grow in international marketplaces, as well as focusing more on the new builder marketplace. All right. Very interesting stuff. And, uh, of course, something that I think everybody wants to know either more about or has already dealt with throughout the pandemic, because a deck is yeah. just uh, got to get out of the house a little bit. It's just a man's castle or a woman's <laughs> castle. If you're a woman who's into decks, 
which I'm sure a lot of them are. Um, Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Brian Fairbanks there uh, joining us from Trex, talking about their recycled deck materials and the growth they've seen and the growth that they expect to come. Um, I dream of a day when I will be back in the United States of America <laughs> putting a deck on the back of my house. I'll consider Trex boards. Let's get over to Fernando Valle now. I told you our oil and gas analyst and Bloomberg Intelligence was going to join us on a couple of uh, really big stories. And Fernando, let's start with the ConocoPhillips purchase of um, assets in the Permian Basin, Shell assets in the Permian Basin. It's a $9.5 billion acquisition. What are the BFW bullet points we should know about here? Well, the big thing is uh, Conoco is acquiring uh, pretty contiguous acreage to its uh, most recent deal, the Concho uh, Resources Acquisition, which it announced in October of last year. And they're acquiring about 175,000 barrels a day of production, uh, which they expect to grow to 200,000 barrels next year and 225,000 acres. Um, And they believe they can actually get more free cash flow um, that way and eventually increase their shareholder distributions towards their their target. And at the same time, lower emissions. They actually increase their targets to uh, lower uh, greenhouse gas emissions to 45 to 50 percent by 2030. So, Fernando, as a longtime uh, energy analyst on Wall Street, you've followed these companies for a long time. And kind of what I've noticed is in the Permian Basin, you know, when things get tough, the big guys come in and can kind of roll up some of the smaller players here. Um, but the seller here is Royal Dutch Shell, one of the majors. Why is Shell selling here? Well, I think there are really two reasons, Paul. First is there is a difference of opinion on, on how the energy transition will will uh, transcribe between the European majors and the U.S. majors and how to address that from an emission standpoint. So Shell has been kind of exiting more and more uh, of the large position oil and gas uh, projects. And this is a marketable asset. Obviously, there, it was a competitive bid process. Um, and also, it was an area where they don't necessarily have the greatest expertise. So I think Shell's really trying to go towards the LNG portion of the, the, the world and uh, so Shell was, was an avenue to raise some funds and do some shareholder buybacks. Um, for Conoco, it's really they've reshaped their company to focus on, focus on Shell, and they're now going to be the second largest producer in the lower 48. So it's really a repositioning. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, they exited Deepwater in 2015 after the oil price crash of 2014. What about the gas price? What about LNG? What about... What's going on in the UK right now? It's been phenomenal to watch, and it seems like everything that's going wrong to push prices higher could. Absolutely. I think you haven't gotten the contribution from renewables that you would have expected in the UK, and I think it's something that uh, we talked about. It's that uh, re- resilience and uh, ability to switch over uh, very quickly. Unfortunately, in Europe, you had a confluence of issues from closing the coal plant a bit faster than uh, was originally expected uh, to issues with Groningen, which was the largest gas shield in, in, in Europe and in the Netherlands that's now being shut uh, sooner than expected. And all of that, uh, because of the low oil prices, gave a, an unreal expectation that that would always be, always be the case. And now uh, we're seeing that having a bit of more of a basket approach would be beneficial as we transition and increase our electricity load. All right, we got WTI crude at $78 a barrel. Uh, should I be looking for some of these, uh, you know, dudes down in Texas and, you know, to start putting wells back in the ground? 
Well, on the private side, they really have been. I think w- with consolidation of Paco and Shell and others like uh, Pioneer and, and, and Parsley, what happens is actually you put, you put fewer because you start to high grade your portfolio. So you only drill your better wells and you pace it a little bit more differently. So I think uh, counterintuitively, all these mergers will actually uh, reduce the amount of, uh, of um, walls you, you would have seen, even though oil prices are rising uh, quickly. All right, Fernando, thanks so much for joining us. Fernando Valle there on the phone out of New York. He's our oil and gas analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.